Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Thank you. You're welcome. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. 
said, I record this day against you that I have set before you, life and death, blessing and curses. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. All right. Hey, I have uh, a request for you, Thomas. Can you uh, log into our chat room? Because I will probably not Bingo. be able to do that. Already, already right. in there. I'm already in uh, there. Thank you. Okay, what have we got today? So much has happened. So much to talk about. Uh, the one thing that I want to get to real quick before we hit headlines is uh, something that came up earlier in the week that I think there's a lot of concern right now because even though it's, it's an issue that has been raised before, it keeps coming up. And that is, um, well, let's, let's, let's talk about it this way. I'd like to add a Bible verse to our broadcast today, and it is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Well, boy, was that ever true this week, as blogger Matt Walsh published a nasty gram sent to him by Rachel in an attempt to refute the pro-life point of view, and we're talking specifically about abortion. The relevant portion of the letter reads, in my best Sally Cohn voice, this is the pro-choice argument that no anti-choice fanatic, especially one as stubborn and simple-minded as you, could ever possibly dispute. If you still don't understand, try to imagine this hypothetical. Imagine that you wake up one morning in a hospital bed. In the bed next to you is a famous singer. He is unconscious and all of these tubes are connected from him to you. A doctor comes in and explains that the singer became sick and you are the only person with the right blood type to match his. They need you to remain hooked up to him until he recovers. They tell you it should only take nine months. Until then, he needs to use all of your organs, your kidneys, liver, lungs, everything just to survive. If you unplug yourself, he will die. So, do you think you are obligated to stay plugged in? Does he have a right to live off of you like this? Should you be forced to stay connected to him? All right, so that was the best Sally Hone voice I could come up with. I tried. Of course. That was good. That was good. <laughs> This is just a rehashing, if, if anybody recognizes this, a rehashing of Judith Jarvis Thompson's 43-year-old violinist argument. Only instead of a famous violinist, the writer, or Rachel, has substituted a famous singer. Well, gee, Solomon, you were right about this not being news after all. You know why I think he has credibility on this issue, right? Do you know why? 
because Solomon, oh, okay, because Solomon adjudicated in the Bible a woman's rights court case involving an issue of afterbirth abortion. Am I right? You hear me? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Solomon. I think he was a smart guy. But back to our story. Abortion supporters think that this line of reasoning is some kind of knockdown argument against outlawing abortion. But I really think that it loses more than it wins in the end. So let's look at this a little closer. With this argument, Thompson, hereafter referred to as JJT, is advancing a pure bodily rights argument. Now, we've heard this before. We hear it all the time. But put it, let's frame it in, the, in terms of the violinist argument that JTT advances. The violinist argument disregards the question about the personhood of the other person in the story. Besides you. Indeed, the way it is stated concedes the personhood of the other person. JJT has acknowledged the personhood of the violinist and by analogy the unborn child. And notice she did not have you hooked up to a camel in her analogy. So, yeah, abortion is killing another person, and she admits that. But the point of the violinist argument is that it doesn't matter, person or not, a woman has the right to do whatever she wants to do with her body. Okay, let's just for a moment pretend that this analogy is sound. It isn't, but just for a moment. What has JJT just asserted with her reasoning? She has said that regardless of the humanity of the fetus or the circumstances in a mother's life, whether she was raped or poor or too young or alone or that it it is simply an inconvenient time to be pregnant, the bedrock of legal abortion is a woman's bodily right. Notice she didn't say privacy. (laughs) I don't know if JJT understood it back when she published the violinist argument. But she just threw every other argument for abortion under the bus. Oh, yeah. You see, every other argument is based on circumstances surrounding a pregnant woman. For example, the fetus is not really alive or even a person. The fetus is a parasite. The fetus isn't conscious or old enough to deliver a pizza yet or it's demon seed. The child will grow up to have a bad life. You know, this, one, this last one is particularly strange because it assumes that a fetus is a child with a, some kind of future, something Cecile Richards just denied on TV not long ago. Hmm. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to JJT, I don't see why we ought to take seriously any other excuse for abortion, seeing as the violinist argument disregards them as completely irrelevant. But the analogy is not really sound. So here, listeners can finish reading Matt Walsh's blog post in response to Rachel's letter. And I highly recommend they pick up Francis Beckwith's book, Defending Life, 
and or Scott Klusendorf's The Case for Life to get fuller responses to this issue. But here I'll briefly offer my responses in addition to theirs. The first problem that I have with the violinist argument is that the violinist is already dying because there is something wrong with his body. And doctors are trying to save his life. If we left the violinist alone where he found him, where we found him, he would die. But a fetus dying. He's alive and growing. If we leave a fetus alone where we find him, he would continue to live, grow, thrive, and eventually be born. For the violinist, intervention is for saving a life. In abortion, intervention is for taking a life. So that's a very important distinction. I hope that's not lost on anybody listening. Number two, to the issue of bodily rights itself, the fetus is a distinct human person who originated in her mother's body. And despite the mother's emotional state or plans for herself, her body, her body, not somebody else's body, her body is biologically nurturing that fetus to maturity. A woman's reproductive system is designed to bring a baby into this world. So how can anyone assert that anything is out of order when a woman's body is functioning just as it is supposed to? So this is really a brain issue. And if JJT or Rachel wants to say there is a problem with a woman's body not cooperating with her desires, she's welcome to say that. I won't because 98% of the time, Nature is doing just what we set it up to do, if you know what I mean. So JJT's argument, uh, as far as the essay that she wrote that in, might have ended there, but Rachel's didn't. So Dev and I asked you to handle the next portion of her letter. What have you to say about that and anything that we've gone through so far? Well, it's... Uh very funny because I just missed almost everything you said. My, I somehow lost connection, but uh, <laughs> I, within like <clears throat> three seconds of getting back Chill in, I heard you ask that question. Chill That's okay, Friday, though. I, I under, great. I under, great. understand the article, though. I've read the read the article, and um, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I've been looking at this. Um, I've been looking at this all all day, looking at this argument, and it's. It's powerful because uh, kind of what pro-lifers do, which we should do, uh, is we're trying to establish the um, autonomy of uh, of the, or the of the baby that the baby is a human being. And of course, the hard part is, uh, uh, or the the powerful part of this argument. Uh, I'm trying to there it is right there. The, the powerful part of this argument is, is that it grants that. It grants the most, to us, one of the most crucial uh, steps to um, the whole abortion debate that the baby is, uh, is a human being. So they're, they're willing to grant that. I like, uh, I, was, I was watching an uh, uh, interview with uh, Trent Horn and Josh Brom today, and 
what Trent does is he actually flips this analogy, and he says instead of uh, you know a bunch of you know crazy musicians that kidnap the violinist, imagine this: you um, you you wake up in the hospital and you see that you are plugged in the, plugged into the violinist, and uh, you're not happy about it, so you unplug yourself, you get up and you, you start walking into the hospital, and as you do, you start feeling dizzy and sick, and the doctor runs up to you and says, um, you know, hey, look, you're going to die unless you're plugged into him, and so you immediately rush back, and the doctor proceeds to tell you uh, what happened was this uh, group of uh, pranksters kidnapped you last night, and um, they, they did something as to where you have to be plugged into them uh, in order for you to be able to, to live. And if you're not plugged into them, you're going to die. And so what they do kind of in this analogy is, is, is kind of flip it around. He says, so you, you're overwhelmed with all this information. You pass out. Uh, and then the violinist wakes up and says, well, you know, hey, I shouldn't be forced to uh, have to have my, my body used by this person. My body my choice, he doesn't have the right to do that. And I think what the analogy kind of shows is that if you put that person in the situation, then you are. You are responsible to take care of them. And if they if, if, you, if they kidnap you, essentially, and they have, you know, um, kind of taken over your your rights, so to speak, they, they are kind of obligated to, to take care of you and to not kill you. What, what do you what do you think of that analogy? Right, I I think what Matt had said was very similar to that that you have a moral obligation to your own child that you don't have to somebody that came along and was hooked up medically to you uh, for right. use of your organs and use of your uh, your body to heal that person's body. Uh, it isn't quite parallel. It isn't analogous in more ways than one. I think I can count at least five or six ways that the violinist argument, and every time I say that, I really, I, I, missed, this, I missed playing it at first, but I, I want to play it again. <laughs> the the <laughs> violinist argument misses the analogy in at least five or six places, and which is why I recommended the books, you know, Frank Beckwith's book and... Scott Klusendorf's book, Case for Life, uh, Frank Beckwith's book is Defending Life, that it was, those are dealt with at length in those books, um, and I just simply offered mine, and to catch you up, <laughs> is I was offering the explanation that to the bo- issue of bodily rights itself, woman's body is acting is only acting the way it's supposed to when a woman is pregnant everything in nature is set up to nurture a child from from conception to birth so an abortion is a is an invasion into a natural process that if left alone would go to completion and it's it's disanalogous very disanalogous to the violinist because um, if left alone, the violinist would die on his own. If we leave a fetus right. just where the fetus is, 
he would he or she would grow up and be born. <laughs> so it is yeah. not the yeah. same at all. Yeah, what, one of the other things, and, and let me get your opinion on this. I'd be interested in it. It would seem to me that the only way this analogy would, would or this this argument would work was if the woman was was raped. And I, I mean, I still don't think it would work even then because you you have good arguments against it. But it would seem to me that the only way that they could even try and push this argument uh, to work is if the woman was raped, because in every other case. It's not like the person just wakes up and they're they're you know plugged into to the violinist. It's you know it's they they consented to it. They they've helped put it there. And so sure. with rape only accounting for you know what, like less than one percent of abortions, then you could probably push him and say, well, okay, then in the other ninety nine percent of the cases, this argument doesn't work. Yeah, but, and yeah, and I, I didn't say that. <laughs> Okay. Right. I did. I, yeah, well, I made I, I made that I made that statement, but let me back that up with um, well, you know, with kind of what seems to me as an obvious assertion: what makes babies? <laughs> and we all know the answer to that question. Um, but what is? But in the effort to separate a mother and her child. Um, the act of procreation from actually procreating. <laughs> uh, the the pro-abortion side has said has disconnected sex from baby making. Okay, if we want to say those two things are not the same and they are disconnected, even though logically they cannot be, but let's just say that they are, then rape can be disconnected from sex. And indeed, this is how psychologists define it. Rape is not about sex. Rape is about power. It has nothing to do with sex. It is a show of power. But what does the, what does the human body know? The human body knows this is the process to make another human being. So when the case is, in the case of rape... The cause of how the baby got there, if you were taking this, taking this logic to its consistent end, is not important. And indeed, the baby doesn't know how it came to be. The woman's body doesn't know how a baby was conceived, except that when a baby is conceived, it responds naturally to that function. The only right. way a woman knows that she has been raped is because she has been raped. It's a, it's, it's, it's a state of history. It's a state of mind. It is, it is what happened between two other people or what one other person did to a woman. Your unborn baby, <coughs> if we take the logic to its end, has nothing to do with it. Right. I like the other the other point too. I think where the analogy breaks down is the idea that uh, you're having to use your kidneys and other things to. Uh, and again, you might have said this, and I probably missed it, but um, having to use your kidneys to support, uh, you know, the violinist. And you know, some of the, the people I've been reading says, you know, that that would be 
that would be, you know, more than going the extra mile. I mean, that would be heroic because that that's not what your kidneys are meant to do. Your kidneys are not meant to filter out other people's, uh, you know, fluids. It's meant yeah. to, to do yours. So, But the womb uh, is meant for that. that. The womb is meant to have the baby there and growing and, and doing all that. So that, I think that also uh, is, is is not a... That's where the that's another part I think phenology breaks down. Right. The the little letter that Matt Walsh that Matt Walsh had published on his blog post today goes on, you know, a little further than what Judith Jarfins Thompson went to talk about and indeed talks about um the the state the woman pregnant the, the pregnant woman is in. She goes on to say Rachel says, instead of harping on those Irrelevant issues. I wish you'd be brave enough to address it from this angle. Oops, I forgot my Sally Cohn voice. It is immoral to require a woman to sustain a fetus, and it is moral for a woman to make a decision with her body based on what is right for her. How can you argue against this? Um, Okay, so here apparently this is the knockdown part (laughs) of the argument. (laughs) <laughs> and um, what did you, what did you come up with uh, as a response to that? Uh, okay, well, I'm restating. Uh, uh, let's try to see here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just uh, you know, there's certain things that we can't do with with our own body, and and uh, some of the things would be, for example, women who are, uh, you know pregnant, shouldn't be drinking alcohol, not doing drugs. Uh, I think Accutane was something that was mentioned that uh, doctors won't prescribe pregnant women because of, I mean, just severe, terrible uh, birth defects. I mean, I just just think it just falls in so many places that just because it's your body, there's several things that, that, you know, you're required required to pay taxes, you're required to or you're not allowed to use drugs when you want. You're not allowed to harm yourself and cut yourself, even if it's your body. So I think just because it's your body doesn't give you this sovereignty that I think they may think it does at first glance. Mm. Right. I I think that's a good answer to that. Um, It seems to me that a lot of people who support abortion are very much in as far as ideologically ideology goes are are very much inclined to say that people need to participate in society with their taxes with their support of xyz programs with the support of government uh, programs of 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 a welfare nature uh, all kinds of things increased regulations on the individual's lives yet when it comes to abortion, they want complete autonomy. We're, you know, they, they don't want autonomy in all the other areas of life, but they want autonomy on this and this alone. Right, that's absolutely right. And I think again that there, there is a, there is a responsibility. And well, I, I really love this guy. Uh, the way he he answered a lot of these is. Um, when he gives us basically ten, he just blows the screw out of the water. But the first one I think is especially important of the analogy being failed because it's um, it's not just you wake up and it's some 
you know, some some guy that you're hooked up to. This is your child. And what if that violinist was was your child? There, there is more. There is some more responsibility. I think that is just morally uh, that that you're obligated to. Or uh, you know, I've heard the analogy before of um, imagine you're out in the mountains and you're camping and you're in your log cabin and you know, at uh, one in the morning, you hear a pounding on the door, and you go in to open the door, and there's a newborn baby sitting there with a note saying, you know, we don't, uh, we can't take care of the baby. Would you please take care of it? Well, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be morally uh, okay to just go ahead and shut your door and let the baby, you know, because it's not yours. There's, there's still some level of obligation of responsibility, I would say, to these, to these babies. Right. I, I, I think that what we the failure here to make a a complete and consistent point of view between what is typically the ideology of those who support abortion and abortion, I, I think that hasn't been pointed out enough. You know, if you ask them, I you know, can you do whatever you want with your body? Well, obviously you can't. You can't vote before you're 18. You can't drink before you're 21. You can't have a job before you're 16. You can't get married until you're 18. You can't do a whole lot of things with your body that you might want to until uh, the government says it's all right to. I don't understand why then, therefore, it's so difficult to say from that point of view then why a woman needs to have this right and needs to have it as early and as often. Sounds like vote early, vote often have it as early and often as she cares to have it or as they care to have yeah. it. Yeah, and I think, again, in 99% of the other cases, and, I, and again, I don't think this argument works, but this, this argument would only even be reasonable, and I don't think it is, but, I mean, the only way they could push it is if the woman is, is raped. I don't see how this argument would work in the other 99% of the right. cases because then they, they would be obligated because they have contributed to putting uh, the, the violinist there, so to speak. So, right. But but again, if you ask him, so are you against the other 99% of abortions? No. You know, they're, they're still for abortion on demand. And I think right. that's, that's why good. It's, it's a smokescreen. Right. We'll be right back uh, after the end of this break. Be right back. Hey, here for Pro-Life Fridays. Right. Uh, sorry, did I say Pro-Life Fridays again? <laughs> True Life Fridays Radio. Hang in there, everybody. We'll make it. Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. I do not join in the belief that the African is our equal in brain or in heart. We are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit. The best way to hate a nigger is to hate him before he is born. American eugenicists were routinely praising Hitler and holding up the Nazi eugenics program as a model for the United States to copy. Non-white races must be excluded from America. The red and black races, if left to themselves, revert to a savage or semi-savage state in a short time. 
The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. We hope that the restraint of population growth can come about through voluntary means. But if it does not, involuntary methods will be used. There should be national sterilization for certain dysgenic types of our population who are being encouraged to breed and would die out for the government not feeding them. If this movement continues, we soon may be accused of fighting poverty by eliminating the poor and overcoming hunger by removing the hungry. For all their failures, what the eugenics movement had accomplished was to lay the foundation for the next phase of their plan. And this is where they would find the success that they had been chasing for over 100 years. Welcome back to Pro-Life Fridays Radio, which is now renamed to be True Life Fridays Radio, everybody. It is a wonderful day. I think I felt warm for the first time in like three months <laughs> since the snow kept falling from the sky and wouldn't stop and the ice kept coming and um, turned my driveway into a an ice rink, I think I can finally go outside without putting on some ice skates. So I hope and I pray that spring has sprung. I know, that was totally cheesy. But uh, so glad to be here with you. If the if you want to call in, the line to call in on is 760-542-3907. Our phone lines are open, and I am pleased today to have a very special guest on with us on True Life Fridays Radio. Uh, she has been participating in several debates that caused, caught my attention over the last, oh, I don't know, couple of years. And she is the co-founder of the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Please welcome to the show, Stephanie Gray. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank yeah, you for very, being very here. excited to have you. Like so, you, I'm still trying to uh, warm up. We have very cold weather in Canada. We had a blizzard in minus 25 two days ago. <laughs> I know. I, I am. I'm not. I'm not envious in the least. I'm. I'm very thankful <laughs> to live where I live, even though it was pretty bad for us uh, this year. But I really, yeah. I, I really am thankful that I don't live hundreds of miles north of where I live. <laughs> but. Um, Thank you for being here. I have I have a ton of questions. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about and have you come on to talk about was that you've had a lot of engagement um, with people uh, that have uh, pro-abortion have a pro-abortion stance. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, um, I think we've had. Let me try to let me try to frame a question before you know. I take the stars out of my eyes. Um, Jonathan Van Marion was your colleague that was been on the show uh, before, and he told us a little bit about the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Remind mm-hmm. us a little bit about what that organization does and kind of what you do, and then that will catch us up to 
cool things that you've been involved in lately. Sure, yes. So we are an educational uh, pro-life organization with a mission to end the killing of preborn children in our lifetime. And uh, several years ago, uh, our team was doing its regular annual dream session and what we wanted to accomplish in the following year. And we kind of had this epiphany and we said, you know, the pro-life movement doesn't seem to have an end game. You know, we seem to exist year after year, and we commemorate our anniversaries. And we have to stop and say, wait a minute, are we putting in a plan that will actually bring an end to abortion? I mean, as Father Frank Pavone has said, we have to end abortion and not just fight it. So uh, in around, I think it was 2011, uh, we put together an 18-year plan for Canada called End the Killing, where we uh, aim to saturate Canadian culture um, with the facts of who the preborn child is and what abortion does to the preborn child, packaging the pro-life message um, through the lens of a human rights argument, simply pointing out that if we believe in human rights, which the average person on the street you ask will say that they do, then all we need to do is make the case that the preborn are human and that abortion violates their human rights, and it would follow that abortion is wrong. And so in order to have this mass um, distribution of the pro-life message, we really have a two-pronged approach, uh, presentations and activism. So where we can get captive audiences, uh, you know, at, at a high school assembly, a church gathering, uh, or on a college campus, say in the context of a debate, uh, we get the message out that way. And then there are many audiences we can't reach in settings like that, so then we go directly to the streets with uh, pro-life messaging and uh, pro-life ambassadors who complement that messaging with a scientific and philosophical explanation for our view. Very nice. Um, how Now, we have lots of groups that do that here in the U.S. too, but it is very, very difficult to find a committed pro-abortionist to come out for a formal debate. Um, mm, just, last, just last week we had Seth Dreyer from Created Equal on, and he had told us that uh, the debate that he had that previous week um, at my alma mater, wanted to throw that out there, yes. uh, they had knocked on every single door in the university and only found one person who was willing, well, slightly unwilling, but the only person left that might take up a debate. Having a formal debate of this nature has been very difficult here because we can't find anybody willing to debate. How have you... Right. Has, how has, experience been? Has it been, have people in the universities and um, pro-choice organizations been more willing to talk? Uh, I would say it's been just as difficult. Uh, I actually first started uh, organizing debates before I myself participated in them. Uh, my first attempt was in 1999 after just meeting Scott Klusendorf, who came to Canada to do a pro-life conference. And I was so blown away by the logic and the grace that uh, he used to communicate the pro-life message. I thought, I want to organize a debate and bring him to my campus. And so there I was, a first-year college student in 1999, and I suddenly decided discovered how difficult it was to get abortion advocates willing to share a platform with a pro-life person and defend their view. And I went through probably 15 or 20 individuals and organizations. They all turned me down. So in the end, we didn't do a debate. And over the 12 years that I have been doing this work full-time, it, it often is like pulling teeth to get 
abortion advocates willing to debate. I've probably, in my 10, 12 years of doing debates, um, debated about between 40 and 50 times, but each one of those times it was very difficult to get someone. Wow. But having 40 to 50 in a 10-year period I think is huge because I think the last time Scott Klusendorf had a formal debate with anybody was a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's, it is, I mean, it was difficult back then, and I think it's probably safe to say it's getting even more difficult because I believe it's becoming clear to abortion advocates that they're losing ground. There is a there's an energy right now in the pro-life movement. Uh, more and more uh, people are getting active, realizing enough is enough, we need to do something. And I think they're feeling threatened. And uh, that's why I actually find it confusing that the abortionist that I have debated three times, uh, late-term abortionist here in Canada, Dr. Fraser Fellows, what boggles my mind is that he continues to debate because in light of, of the kind of scene, it, it doesn't seem advantageous for the other side to come forward and, and essentially give us a platform by being a part of the platform. But he keeps coming out. <laughs> hey, hey yes, Stephanie, and... I, I got a quick quick question. Oh, go ahead, Latisha. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you go ahead, Devin. It's all right. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I go was ahead. just going to ask you uh, a question. By the way, huge fan. I'm over here with stars in my eyes, too, so <laughs> forgive me for the stammering. But uh, with the whole Kermit Gosnell case, do you think that that did a lot to kind of change the mood, maybe, of abortion? Because people kind of thought it, of how gruesome it is? I think it certainly has contributed to that increased debate in our society. Of course, there was resistance by the, you could say, secular media to even cover what was going on, and they kind of finally got into uh, getting some information out. I think any time we can bring to light what's going on in darkness, it's going to uh, advance our cause. And certainly the court case of Gosnell brought to light what, what was going on, and uh, mm -hmm. that will absolutely contribute to changing things. Great. How Speaking of Dr. Fraser Fellows, um, you debated him three times. Did I hear you right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct. And then my oh, okay. colleague just did her first debate, which was uh, a week ago, and it was against him. So four, four times he's debated our right. team. And I have only li listened to one uh, complete debate with, that you had with him. He seems... Now, I, the question that I really wanted to ask is kind of centered around the debate with him and kind of his motivation for doing what he does. Because what I heard from him during the debate that I listened to was that he is only uh, willing to do, he's a late-term abortionist, willing to do what he does because he's able to. The law gives him permission to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he... I mean, go ahead and, and try to explain what you've gathered about him <laughs> from your interaction. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of try to figure him out more and more each time because he's so fascinating in one sense that he can... Yeah, go on a platform where the, the most gruesome of abortion videos will be shown and just, you know, wholeheartedly admit, yes, that's what I do. Yes, that's what it looks like. Yes, everything you're saying is accurate. You know, it's just 
shocking. Um, so in terms of why he does abortions, when I've asked in, in our second debate, he said, well, because women want it and I'm good at it. And what I and my colleague Mike have tried to communicate to the audience, to him, is when women claim they want abortions, we would serve them well by asking why they want abortions and not simply giving them the abortion. And what Dr. Fellows himself has, has acknowledged is that it's often women in crisis that he sees. They maybe have abusive partners. They could be victims of sexual assault. Um, they, you know, any number of difficult circumstances they could be in. And so it just seems to me that if we truly cared about women, then we would acknowledge the abortion isn't going to ultimately solve the crisis they're in. It's not going to unrape a rape victim. It's not going to turn a woman's frog of a, a boyfriend or husband into a prince. So right. the idea that um, women, quote-unquote, want abortion, I think is, is a problematic one if we really examine the why behind the what. But that, that is what he has at least expressed as to why he does it. You know, he will claim women will die from illegal abortions and be harmed from illegal abortions. And so he's essentially, in his mind, providing a service that helps women. Very interesting. Um, I, at one point, I think I heard him say that he... He's only in, I guess he does this for a business, that he's only in business to do this because the government allows him to. It is legal. And if it were not legal, yes. I think he would mm-hmm. do something that yes, was that, that That is the very interesting um, way of thinking that he has expressed now on, on the last few occasions of our debates, which is that whatever the majority say, I'll do. So, you know, the attitude that, well, because it's legal, then, yes, I do it. Well, if society changes and bumps back the date a bit or whatever, well, then I won't. Um, And yet he's not consistent because, for example, technically under Canadian law, you can have abortions through all nine months of pregnancy, yet he himself Mm -hmm. stops at the uh, sixth day of the 23rd week. So... If he truly will give women what they want within the confines of the law, he should be doing abortions up to nine months, and yet he doesn't. Or if he's truly about giving women what they want, then he would do the abortion on the patient who wants a sex-selective abortion, yet he himself admitted that's the one reason for abortion he won't proceed, and that is if a woman prefers one uh, gender over another. So there's an inconsistency in his way of thinking. Interesting. Um, has Have your audiences been able to perceive that inconsistency? I mean, I hope so. But Definitely, yes. To show this. Right, wow. yeah. We have had people, you know, even abortion advocates, apparently the most recent debate were, were saying it's not fair that you brought him in because he's not very good. He doesn't argue very well. And it's like, goodness gracious, we can't seem to ever satisfy them because every time I debate there's a complaint about the abortion supporter who was chosen. And right. it just seems to me that if you believe so much in abortion, surely you should think your best advocate would be the one who actually does abortion. So in terms of the audience recognizing a good case isn't being made, uh, we, we see that happen at, at our second debate. A student said to me, I came in here not knowing what to think, but I am absolutely against abortion now. Wow, wow. So tell us a little bit about the other um, – well, I guess this is a backup question too. 
kind of the attitudes that Canada has in um, about abortion because it's slightly different from the United States where um, all that stands in between legal abortion and the laws that existed beforehand was one court decision or a, a twin mm. cases of court decisions. It's actually written as a, a legislatively legal in Canada, is it not? Well, no, actually, we kind of have a rare situation in that we technically have no law. Um, we okay. had a law in 1969, actually before you, uh, in 1973. In 1969 in Canada, the door was opened, and uh, a law was established that abortion could happen under certain circumstances with the approval of a therapeutic abortion committee. And so from 1969 to 1988, abortions were only um, legal under these certain circumstances. And then in 1988, there was a Supreme Court decision where that 1969 law was thrown out on grounds that it violated our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And as a result, the, the Supreme Court actually said it's the responsibility of our elected representatives to come up with a new law. But no law has ever been established since that Supreme Court decision throwing out our previous law. Um, what we do have in our, in our books is in our, our, um, our, under the criminal code, uh, they define a human being and what homicide is, and you're not considered a human until you have fully proceeded in a living state from the body of your mother. So in the absence of an abortion law and the presence of this declaration in our criminal code of when you become a human being, which is post-birth, that's why it's open season on preborn children through all nine months of pregnancy oh. and okay. paid for with our tax dollars. And our government has gone so far as to use Canadian tax dollars to fly women to the United States to have some late-term abortions done. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, how, however you, they decide that abortion may be permitted in a society is, is a, fascinating, a fascinating question. And how has the public received it this far? Because we have a, you know, there is an abortion culture in the United States. And what are you dealing with in Canada? How does, how does that look, what does that look like in Canada? Good question. I find for the most part there's a lot of similarities between our two countries when it comes to mm -hmm. how frequent abortions happen, um, the, the rhetoric of abortion supporters, the indifference of a lot of people who just want to avoid the debate entirely. You hear the same kind of stuff. What I would say I see as different is, one, you Americans just seem to have that, that fighting spirit, which is obviously seen in your history. <laughs> We're still with England. So um, that, I think, makes you more inclined to wade into the debate more readily than Canadians are willing to. So we really have to force a debate on our culture. I think that has to happen there, too. But here it's, we have that added element of that Canadian politeness, as it's called. And then um, the, the second thing is, has completely slipped my mind, but uh, I, I have another thought, and if it comes back, I'll let you know as to what the other difference is. Okay, well, um, I think Thomas has a question he'd like to uh, jump in here with. Thomas, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Let's yeah. I had, Stephanie, uh, I appreciate the comment that you made about Kermit Gosnell 
and, you know, how that helps to really bring more attention to, uh, you know, what's going on in the, with the whole abortionist, late-term abortionist. But let me ask you this. You heard about the, uh, obviously, you heard about the abortionist down in Houston, Texas, Douglas Carpin, who was actually twisting the heads off the baby. Well, mm. they convened the grand jury in Houston, and they decided that they were not going to prosecute him for that, even though he had, there were uh, three of his pharma um, clinic workers um, was interviewed on their hidden video by Mark Frutcher, and they shared everything he did, but they decided not to um, file charges against him. In light of something like that, how how does that, you know, how does that motivate you all at the Center for Bioethics? How does that how does that motivate y'all in the fight even more, knowing that someone could twist the head off a baby like that, who they were born and still be right. away with? Right. You know, I think it shows well, what a spiritual battle this is, that people can be so blinded to evil that it can be so obviously wrong as right. what you just described and there be this, this in unwillingness to, to charge as charges should be laid. Um, I think there are, there are two kinds of people in our culture, those who are ignorant and those who are in denial. The ignorant just don't know, and therefore the solution is to educate, and they will be enlightened, and they change their minds. Those right. who are in denial are a different camp of people. Those who are in denial, it's not a matter of not knowing. It's a matter of not wanting to know. Uh, they wow. have built a wall up in their brains. Their issue isn't one of logic, but often one of the heart, because they themselves maybe have had an abortion or facilitated someone's abortion. So when you have just outrageous um, decisions like the one you just described, I can't help but wonder what has been the life experience of those who made this decision? Who do they know who's had an abortion that they are so firmly committed to rationalizing that decision that they will make the, um, the hold the view that they do? Well, may I an- actually answer that question for you? The mayor, of, the mayor of Houston is a lesbian and her partner is actually used to serve on the board of directors of Planned Parenthood of Greater Houston. That's why. Well, exactly. And and so there you see the moment you have people, and and Dr. Fellows would be another example, people who are entrenched in supporting, facilitating, encouraging, and doing abortions are obviously going to be very extreme in what they permit and what they say is okay because to admit that something isn't okay is to to put a little crack in there that that could result in more cracks that could cause their whole worldview to crumble and um so so that that's what we're up against so decisions like this and declarations like this i mean anytime you have people making these kinds of arguments well you know we're not you know we're not going to pursue criminal charges and so on and so forth it really has to be a motivation for pro-lifers to say maybe i can't win these specific individuals but i can win the culture because i believe the culture is more ignorant than in denial and i just need to enlighten the ignorant um 
culture, and the majority will eventually come around and, and not stand idly by uh, while this kind of bloodshed is happening. Right. Thank you for answering my question. Great. All right. Thanks for asking, Thomas. Um, You were recently here in the United States. That's right. Sorry. I was checking to see if my microphone was on. Um, You were recently (laughs) here, and you um, you spoke at the Students for Life conference. And tell me what is you spoke of this energy that, the pro-life movement has had that hasn't, uh, I guess we haven't had in several decades, that the momentum is really picking up. What did you, what do you sense when you, when you say that we're, um, we're picking up some speed, we have some energy, and where do you see that going? Well, you know, I even see, certainly on, let's say, college campuses across both your country and mine, there is a lot of pro-life activity. You don't have just lone pro-life students, but you have entire student groups and clubs that are Mm -hmm. formed with the express purpose of educating their campus uh, at a level that we haven't seen before. Um, You have abortion um, activity, sorry, educational uh, activity going on to enlighten the public about abortion uh, happening on a regular basis. I mean, there's so many organizations that that we partner with, obviously, the CBR in the States, um, uh, Justice for All, Created Equal, uh, Life Training Institute, Mm -hmm. these many organizations that are regularly presenting the facts to the culture and seeing not only minds change, but people becoming convicted that they need to do more. So whereas historically a lot of the pro-life manpower was, was rooted in volunteer efforts, we have that still, plus we have people who are making it their life's career uh, to work full-time in the pro-life movement, and more and more organizations are hiring people who are working 40 hours a week, if not more, um, to directly uh, respond right. to this crisis. Right, right. Where, I'm not trying to put a time frame to this, but with so much advances, I believe in the reach of the pro-life community, being able to get the pro-life message out and recognized by the public, um, despite, despite the media. <laughs> um, how... Do you see that, is there a win? Like you were talking about there's an end game to this. Is there a win to this? If Absolutely. If they couldn't keep going on the way they are. Cool. So Absolutely. All we have to do is look at history to get a sense of what our future will be. In every period of history, there was great injustice, and there were always people who rose up amidst the darkness to bring light. And not only did that light eventually win out, but in many cases, those who were fighting for justice saw their culture be transformed while they were still alive. You know, you look at uh, William Wilberforce seeing an end to the slave trade and slavery in Great Britain uh, while he was alive. And so it's entirely possible to see an end to the killing of preborn children in our lifetime. But it's going to take the kind of sacrifice and dedication and courage of people like William Wilberforce and the other abolitionists who worked with him, such as Thomas Clarkson. Um, If we don't kind of make our decisions with the idea that this has to end in our lifetime, 
then we won't fight as hard thinking, well, someone else will do something. We have to take the responsibility on and say, I have to do something now to end the killing now because every day that this continues on, innocent lives that in no way can defend themselves are are being brutally destroyed. Right. I see that um, without having to put a time frame on this because there's no way to know, what are the last remaining obstacles that need to be overcome? I think I think that moving forward, people want to know. I mean, what do we have left to do? Besides, besides keeping on, keeping on, what are the next major obstacles? Right. I think what we have to do is really focus on education. Um, actually, remember that the point that I <laughs> that second point I couldn't remember a little earlier, dif- differentiating <laughs> your country and mine when it comes to uh, pro-life ac- activity and, and the state of affairs is that you have far more advancements when it comes to legislation uh, at a state level, for example, rather than in Canada where we really haven't seen anything. Um, since that law in 1969. So that's, that's where you're ahead of things. There's, there's movement politically, but we often don't see a change in public policy uh, until there is a corresponding change in public opinion. And um, what the one thing I would say the pro-life movement has done really, really well is to set up pastoral hand-holding, walk-with-you help centers across the country. Um, There are so many pregnancy support centers and resource centers, homes for women in crisis, uh, post-abortion ministry. We have done that so well. Of course, you can always improve, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of help there that we as a movement are offering that isn't being used to its maximum extent. I know of homes for, for pregnant women that are literally empty, And the women aren't choosing to live there, not because they're not nice, but because they're choosing the abortion clinic over the help center because they want out of their problem, which is what the abortion clinic offers them, rather than help through their problem, which is what that that home and a pregnancy resource center offers. So in order to get our pastoral arm used to its maximum effect, in order to get our legislation changed so that it's not just... um, limited, but abortion is actually banned, what we really need to do is ramp up our education so that we directly confront the culture with the facts about who the baby is, about what abortion does to the baby, and if we don't directly engage people, since they're not coming to us in large numbers, then we're not going to see this Mm -hmm. issue turn around. But if we develop Mm -hmm. a plan to directly engage people, I I think not only can we do it in a timeline, but we should do it in a timeline. For us, we've said, okay, 18 years, here's our 2020 goals, here's our 2030 goals. We've picked, you know, key areas of the country and said, well, this is where you've got this, you know, 11 million people in a small geographic area. We're going to target this area. We're going to make sure every home gets a postcard. They're seeing images once a week. I think that kind of strategy could happen on a state-by-state level where you've already got existing pro-life organizations and they need to say, okay, let me stay like a laser beam focused on my state. What am I doing to make sure that there's activity five days a week educating the people in my state about abortion? What are we doing to make sure that regularly, weekly, people are, are being exposed to the pro-life message in my state? And if every group within their state focused on their state, it, it would change. I believe we can do it in, in two decades. 
I would love to see that. That would be awesome because um, the advantage, I think, that we have here in the United States is that we are broken up into smaller territories that are physically man more manageable by pro-life groups. Um, I do think we have some internal obstacles as well as those external obstacles. In the way, too, um, I, I do see a lot of uncooperation, I say, uncooperativeness between um, among a lot of pro-lifers. It's very disappointing. I think, you know, in the course of running this True Life Friday show, Thomas and I mm. have gone through the gamut of differing opinions that have mattered um, right. so far as that people will not work with others even though we're all trying to work with, for the same goal, do you see that as something that needs to be dealt with? It does. It's certainly a problem. I, I think I do see it more in your country than ours, but it's certainly in our country. Don't get me wrong. There's that mm -hmm. same kind of divisiveness. And we, ha we have to remember, united we stand and divided we fall. And the enemy is I going agree. to want to attack us from within by creating divisions. One of the things that we have done internally with our organization, um, that is we have mentioned it to other organizations, you see their, the, the, the boards of different groups, their faces light up, oh, this makes sense, is we have said, as an organization, we have to be guided by the following principle, effectiveness. Everything we do or don't do has to be done or not done because ultimately we believe it's most effective. And then the... the um, the core values that, that, that support that guiding principle of effectiveness is quality, creativity, and honesty. We say quality, number one, we want to produce good material for the culture. Uh, number mm -hmm. two, we want to be creative. We want to constantly be changing with the changing culture insofar as making our messaging relevant. And finally, we want to be honest with ourselves and with society what are not only the facts of abortion and prenatal development, but internally when we're making a decision and I don't think something's a good idea, I need to be honest with my colleagues and they need to be honest back about what their reasoning is so that we come to a decision that's ultimately guided by effectiveness. What we do within our organization should really be what the whole pro-life movement does. If we seem to be butting heads, we should sit behind closed doors and say, is your ultimate interest effectiveness? is my ultimate interest effectiveness. We can only have a conversation if our ultimate interest is effectiveness. Once we establish that it is, then we say in all humility, let's evaluate what you're suggesting and what I'm suggesting through that lens. What evidence do we have to support our claims? If we don't have the evidence but our guts tell us we think we're right, how do we generate the evidence to make sure our gut is actually right? And, and we start, that doesn't mean there's only one thing to do, but what it means is what those various things are that we need, that we do, we have to be running through that lens of, is this be something which is going to save the most number of lives in the least amount of time? And then ego gets right. thrown out personal revelations of what we should do get thrown out. What is mm -hmm. going to be effective in not only the short term as well as the long term? And there are some decisions we're going to make in the short term that may seem a little bit like a compromise, but that's because in an, in an analysis, we know long term it will be most effective. Those conversations need to be had amongst different organizations. Oh, I agree. And I think I've saved the very most Difficult to answer, to ask, difficult to ask question for last. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it was a few months ago that there are a lot of youth 
that are rushing into the pro-life movement. I mean, we need them. It's, they're enthusiastic. It's great to see. But there was one question in particular I think I l- looked at um, on Facebook. I'm not going to identify who it was asked to. But they were, they were asking, how can I, I think this is how it went, how can I become a pro-life, <clears throat> excuse me, a pro-life rock star? <laughs> and it mm. kind of betrays my, per, my personal reaction uh, to starting the show that I have to take the stars out of my eyes, um, this perception that there is, a, there is within the pro-life community the ability to become something right. of, of a famous and, person uh, in and of, of themselves. And can you, can you kind of address that in any way that you want? I'm just going to leave it wide open for you. Sure. If we look at what ultimately is at the core, the core problem within our culture and within the abortion rights movement is it's a primacy of the self. It is putting the self before the other. It's that inward focus that we want to abandon, that we believe is part of the culture of death and has no place in the culture of life. So as a result, Our question should not be, how can I become a pro-life rock star, which really is an inward-focused question. Whether the person who asked it was aware of that or meant that, um, that's that's really what it sounds like. So therefore, instead, we want to say, how can I use the giftings I've been given, the way God has created me, to best serve the other, in this case, pre-born children? There's certainly is um, or there are talents and gifts that people have been given that can very much be a massive asset to any cause. And these talents will be varied. For some people, it's working behind the, the, behind the scenes. For other people, it's being on the stage. But what matters is that we use them not for our own glory, not for our fame, but rather for the service of others. And looking at Christ as our example, where he came not to be served, but to serve. And so the question is, how can I serve? And that may mean some very profound and beautiful set of gifts, but if we are not guided with that perspective that these gifts ultimately are to be used for the service of others, we will see our downfall. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I think that there is a mistake that some people think when they come into uh, see these activities that we do, and we have protests, we have march, we have um, organizations that are built around the issue of ending abortion, and we see that people rise to prominence. I think there's a mistake that, that is made at some point in time to think that you can really make a name for yourself if you uh, become active enough in the pro-life movement, and I really think, I really hope and pray that people come to a perspective, especially the young persons who who may be, I don't know, self-deceived in the thinking that this is something to pursue, that it is really about uh, the subject matter, which is ending abortion, and very little about the self. And I I really hope that this is the case. Yeah, and and very much it, oh, we're out of time. Uh, we're getting there, <laughs> but I'll go ahead That's and finish fine. your thought. <laughs> well, no, I was, I was just going to say that, that it's, I think people sometimes confuse what is the goal versus what is the effect. The moment what, if the, mm-hmm. what is the goal becomes personal prominence, 
we're going to be in trouble. Sometimes the effect is people become prominent, but the goal is to use one's giftings to serve the other. And the cry of the heart of anyone who becomes prominent because of the kind of giftings they happen to be given, the cry of their heart must be, may I decrease so that God may increase. May I decrease so that God may increase. Amen. Amen. I, I think that needed to be heard. I really did. I think it needed to be said and it needed to be heard. Devin, do you have anything to add to this or a question for Stephanie? Well, just uh, one one question kind of had, had popped up some in my mind. Really enjoyed the interview, but uh, one of the things we were kind of talking about was, you know, healing the division. And, and one of the things was brought up was kind of getting together. And you know, what is the goal? Is the goal to save as many babies as we can? One of the one of the things I have noticed with some of the groups is. Their main priority when they're at the abortion clinic is to preach the gospel. And mm. so for them, prag- pragmatism as far as saving as many babies as they can is, I, mean, I don't want to say they don't care about saving babies because I know they do, but that's, that's not the number one goal for them. The number one goal for them is to, is to preach the gospel. What is, what is your advice or what, what do you say about that as far as, you know, how, how do we work with, with people that don't particularly care to sit and necessarily reason with people outside of the abortion clinic about the scientific facts or philosophical arguments and pragmatic arguments, but are more just wanting to, to preach the gospel and that's it? Right. Again, um, I, I think challenging them to consider that question, am I being effective? So even with preaching the gospel, there are people who can do that and and be effective in achieving their goals, but there are other people who will maybe preach and preach and people just walk on past. So asking them that question and asking them, if a child was a drowning in a pool, would you stand on the side and preach the gospel first or would you follow the most immediate need in the moment or address the most immediate need in the moment, jump in the pool, save the drowning child, and, and not set aside that important message of communicating Christ's message to the world, but understanding in that moment of crisis you had a physical need that, that needed to be addressed. What we have found is um, we will meet with existing pro-life organizations if we go to an area, tell them who we are, and invite them to be a part of our projects. In fact, what we say is we don't have plans to have offices across our country because what matters to us is not a spreading of our name, but rather a spreading of a strategy that we know through um, measurement that the strategy works. So we have organizations in different parts of the country that are implementing our projects through their name and through their organization because we've met with them and, and they're sold. There are other groups that may say, oh, you know what, we don't, we're not a big fan of what, we're doing, what you're doing, so we don't want to meet with you. We consider that a tragedy when they're unwilling to meet with us, but you can't force someone to talk with you when they're unwilling to talk with you. So I think our strategy needs to be we're always open, we invite people to a discussion, and for those who are willing to have it, I think we'll see it bear fruit, and we've seen that. 
For others, we try. If they close the door, then we live with the motto, lead, and others will follow. So rather than banging on that closed door, we just move forward with a strategy that we know will work, and we focus on the real opposition, which is the abortion industry. And in time, what I'm seeing is people who didn't like our strategy eight years ago are starting to come on board. Great answer. Awesome. Very good. Thank you. Time helps all things, hopefully, prayerfully. And I want to thank you for being on the program. I think you have enlightened us quite tremendously. I, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the segment because and kept it up with uh, the archives because I think you have said some things that we have said on this show before. But uh, like you said, like it goes, we have to have somebody else to say it too. So I think I really appreciate what you've had to say t- today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk with you guys. Right. We would love to have you on again. And uh, keep keep working uh, on what you, the things that you're doing. I'm so glad that you've had so many debates because um, we don't see that a lot here <laughs> so much. Right. Uh, and uh, I'd love to hear about it when you do. So keep, stay in touch. Thank you. And if people go to unmaskingchoice.ca they can not only see those debates but they can click on our end the killing plan awesome awesome and uh, whenever yeah, you come you... to St. Louis or Charlotte North Carolina or and one of these days Kansas City uh, Missouri we would love <laughs> to have an event through, um, that sounds with, great uh, with you and your colleagues thank you right. so much God bless God bless you bye All right, we want to go take a quick break, and we'll be right back. to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Now become True Life Fridays Radio. Find us on Facebook at slash True Life Fridays Radio and on Twitter at TLF Radio. We would love to hear you in one way or the other. And the show number to call is 760-542-3907. want to give a shout out to our sponsor for True Life Fridays Radio, and that is Lifeboat Coffee Company. If you're looking for truly cruelty-free coffee, teas, and uh, all the stuff that goes with it, uh, honey even, try lifeboatcoffee.com. They are the official sponsors of True Life Fridays Radio. And if you happen to be a pro-life loving person who wants to donate to your favorite pro-life group, Please check out their affiliate program. 10% of your purchases goes to the pro-life cause of your choice. Life of Coffee. No more spins in circles. 
hearts on the city streets, but I can hear that you're calling me to be the hope, be the light, be the love right now, starting right now. And we are back with more True Life Fridays Radio. I am your host, Letitia Wong. And I wanted to just get to some headlines because there have been so many awesome headlines, things to talk about in the last week or so. First, I want to give out a huge, huge shout-out to my friends with Life Runners. They have reached their 50th state to establish a Life Runners team. Woohoo! Uh, liferunners.org if anybody wants to find some information about that. But now, proudly, they are in every state in the United States. So I think that's a great triumph. I don't run, but they say you don't have to. So there you go. Get a T-shirt. Go, go running, go walking, whatever. Um, they would love to have you. And what they do at Life Runners is they help raise money and awareness through their um, their training activities and their running their running activities. It's a great way to get uh, the fight against abortion hugely visible because you'll have a team of people running down the street, you know, in their blue shirts, and people will stop them and ask them why they're doing what they're doing, and then they get to tell them. We're running to raise money and uh, support for ending abortion. That's awesome. So just a shout-out to that. And next, Hillary Clinton says women's rights can't progress without the right to abortion. Huh. Wow. I, I think we've dealt with this mentality uh, for years. And even... Our Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, kind of goes with this and agrees with this type of thinking that abortion is necessary for women to advance in the world, or in this case, women's rights to advance. And I think she even goes even farther to say that human rights or human civilization or human development, I, I think that's a little bit much to place on the shoulders of abortion to be able to accomplish all that. But... They said it. They said it. What do you think, Devin? Uh, I did not catch uh, what you said. Sorry about that. Let's just say that oh. again. <laughs> As Hillary Clinton says women's rights can't progress without the right to abortion. Yeah, and I would say that Supreme is uh, uh, that agrees with that. Yeah, that kind of a that kind of a mindset actually, I think, is what is. Uh, prohibiting uh, women, uh, my, myself. I think that places a very low value on women, myself. That kind of a mentality. Right. Um, you see the results, and I'm going to work backwards here with that. You see the disdain. I see it in the media. The disdain for women who have had uh, large families. I think of the Dugers. The Dugers, uh, in particular, I think of the parents with their children. I think of uh, a lot of these other celebrity families with, with four or five children. I've even heard this said about 
um, what's the what's the soccer player's name uh, that married Victoria? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, shoot, it just slipped my mind. Ben, uh, ben, 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 Bender or something like that. Somebody, somebody's gonna say it, and somebody's gonna email it in right now and tell us who it is. Beckham, Beckham, there it is. Thank you, Victoria, David, and Victoria Beckham. When they had their fourth child, now it's not like they have 19 or 20 children like the Dugers have. I think that one. I think that they're an obvious target, but for having a fourth child, they were criticized heavily for exceeding somehow somebody's idea of of reproductive limits, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. They have too many to perceive or perceive to have too many kids. And outside of saying what business is of yours to say how many kids somebody should have, um, their objection was it's bad for the planet, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for the booming population control problem that we have. And there's where I think that the real problem lies, is this artificial understanding of what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a human being, and putting those right. types of limits on people. Oh, hey, you know what? You have bodily autonomy, though. <laughs> you can do whatever you want with your body except have more kids than what's popular. So, so well, when Hillary Clinton says that women's rights can't progress without the right to abortion, I'm not exactly convinced that abortion is, first of all, a right. And second of all, I mean, we can have that debate, but first of all, not a right. Second of all, that it helps women at all to be able to have abortion on a practical level. Yeah. Because we have seen right. over and over again the negative effects of abortion, which Hillary Clinton will never talk about. But we have seen abortion harm far more women than it's helped. That's not to say women can't have um, recover from having abortion and move on with their lives as they perceive it should move on to. But far more, it is a dangerous uh, pill to swallow. And the promises that people like Hillary Clinton have given to women saying that it's going to be good for you when you, if you don't have a baby that you don't want or can't take care of or a host of other issues, it's better that the child die so that you can do what you'd like to do. I think the consequences from those decisions have hurt women's rights and women's causes and the advancement of women in society far more than it's helped. And that's and I agree. The, yep. When when women have a, a procedure done to them that ends the life of their unborn child, I think women can't help but be harmed by that psychologically, emotionally, somewhere in their lives. That's that's going to come out. It will. It absolutely will. It's going to affect them, like you said, psychologically, physically. I think. I think the psychologically is 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 the worst. I mean, there's just there's no way to get around that. And I think it's because I think intuitively people people know, you know, that it's right. You know, it's it's much more have, going on than a toothache or something. You know, getting a tooth pulled or something. Right. We've had a psychologist on our program 
to detail how um, I, I think it was at least 20% of the women who have had who are post-abortive have experienced, and this is what they can document only. There's far, you know, it's spectrum, but far more women than than are being talked about are going through symptoms that can only be described as uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress right. disorder, um, post-abortive depression, uh, self, the the uh, tendency for self-harm, and drug use, drug use. Plus, as we touched on earlier, women have a tendency to use, or people have a tendency to use abortion to keep women in abusive situations. So abortion has not helped those women. Right. Um, so I don't, I'm not really sure that Hillary Clinton knows what she's talking about in this. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's in general. anything else. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Hey, hey, Letitia, quick question for you. Uh, Clinton from LPI uh, is on the line, and sure. next week he, he has an upcoming debate with Matt Dillahunty on our show, Theology Matters. Uh, is, it okay, is it okay if we bring him on for a few minutes and and maybe talk uh, talk with him about that upcoming debate? Absolutely. Hey, Clinton, welcome to True Life Fridays Radio. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I, I'd actually kind of like to comment on the previous discussion first, if I could. On the which one? On the the previous discussion about uh, oh, Hillary sure. Clinton and reproductive rights. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it, I haven't actually heard where Hil- where Clinton was talking about this, so I'm not sure, you know, exactly what her reasoning is for this. But it's always kind of struck me as as a disguised uh, misogyny to say that women need reproductive rights. Um, as, you know, a, a lot of times it's said in the, in the context of uh, women need abortion to be, uh, to, to be uh, you know, to be equal with men, uh, which just strikes me as, as a ridiculous thing to say because we should uh, celebrate what makes women different from us and not try to make them like us to be equal. Um, and it's, it's pretty shameful that one of our Supreme Court justices lacks the knowledge of what rights actually are to agree with, here with, uh, with Hillary Clinton. That just, that just kind of bothered me, I guess. Okay. Um, I believe she had said that in, in a United Nations uh, forum. Hmm. So it was not something right here, you know, to address to the country. Um, right. So, yes. Um, no, that's a that's a good point that I think we need to we need to to bring out a little bit more and I, I kind of reserved that. I was hoping that our guest earlier was going to make some mention of of that. Um we never got around to that. But um yes, I think that it's true that women uh to say that women can only achieve something significant by having a surgical procedure performed on them that somehow puts them on equal par with men is an absurd statement to begin with, a proposition to begin with, because isn't the, isn't the foundation of women's rights is that we are equal just as we are? And yet, and yet we need a procedure that without the benefit of modern technology, modern medical technology. I mean, abortion is predicated on our understanding of human development and of of surgical cleanliness. You know, God forbid. I hope we don't return to the to the era where abortionists feel so comfortable. Oh, but we did. His name was Dermot Gosnell. 
feel comfortable about endangering women's lives through through certain abortion uh, un, unsanitary abortion procedures. Um, but we right. know all this now. So I, I mean, if if women are intrinsically equal to men, why do we need abortion to then make us equal? Right. Yeah, that's all I wanted to kind of comment on. So, um, Devin, if you'd like to talk about the debate, we can do that too. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So uh, uh, you've heard uh, Bill. I think, to my knowledge, he's only done one debate on abortion. Is that correct? With uh, Christine? Uh, to my knowledge, he's only done that one. I, I don't know if he's done any others or not. I know he debates on God's existence uh, pretty often. Okay. So what, uh, I guess, uh, are you are you doing anything in particular to prepare for this debate? or? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, I, I watched Matt's debate with Christine like a hawk, and I took copious notes. Uh, to prepare myself for the possible arguments that Matt may bring up. And I have a couple of my colleagues in um, Secular Pro-Life who have actually agreed to, to do some mock debates with me. And um, on top of that, I've been talking to both uh, Josh Brom and Scott Klusendorf about um, about speaking and, and debate tactics and things like that. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, Matt's a you know, a, a high, pretty high-profile uh, debater. And so I, I'm trying to get myself as prepared as possible for this debate. Right. So, Devin, can you set this up for us? Can you set this up for us? Because we kind of jumped right into the middle. Uh, what is happening? Oh, sure. When is it happening? And where? <laughs> that is, yep, my fault. Sorry about that. Uh, no problem. So next, uh, next Thursday, uh, it will be on the show that I host on Thursday nights, Theology Matters. Uh, with the Palouz, and I believe my wife had, uh, you, you could probably tell the story even better than I could, Clinton. Didn't, didn't my wife uh, contact you about trying to set a debate up with, with uh, Matt and Honey? Yeah, she did. Uh, it was kind of out of the blue, because I, I had mentioned that I was trying to get a debate set up in person in Texas, uh, but my contacts uh, never got back to me. And so... And so Melissa caught wind of this and actually just sent me a message over Facebook and said, hey, you know, we've had Matt on the podcast before. Would you be interested in doing the debate on our podcast? And it just kind of went from there. Right. And so next Thursday from 6 to 8 Eastern, it'll be, be two hours, uh, I think an hour and a half, uh, kind of a back and forth and, and dialogue, and then 30 minutes for people to call in and ask questions. And what was the topic of that again, Clinton? Well, actually, real quick, is it is it next Thursday? Because I was under the impression that it was Tuesday the twenty fifth. Oh, um, I will. I can message you and get back to you. I could be wrong because I'm not sitting here by well, my calendar. This is okay, going I, to I be said, recorded. Yeah, this is going to be recorded on the twenty fifth, and the right, air right, right. on the Thursday the twenty seventh. Okay, yeah. gotcha. I, I just wanted to yeah, I just wanted to make that clear, just in case you weren't saying the wrong date for, for people to tune in. Yeah, uh, that's right. Okay. Okay. That's right. Okay. Okay. That's, so, that's um, during theology matters, I don't believe you'll be able to have live calls into the program on Thursday, um, but those calls will be taken ahead of time when they record uh, when this records right. on the Tuesday prior to that. Yeah. Right. So we'll we'll basically play that show twice that week. Is that right, uh, Leticia? Yeah. That's right, okay. and then we'll replay it for True Life Fridays on the 28th. 
going to be should abortion be legal. Okay. So, so we're basically going to be debating uh, whether or not abortion should remain legal. Not necessarily just the morality of it, but the actual legality of abortion. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that's a great topic. That is, that is probably the, the most uh, debated about in the, in the abortion. Yeah. There, we have a lot of people that will concede that abortion is killing, abortion is murder, and go so far as to say that abortion is morally offensive. However, they will defend the idea that it ought to be legal. Right, yeah. Which, you know, to be fair, are two separate questions. Uh, because something, you know, not everything that is immoral we make illegal. So, right. but, you know, there is... The, the dichotomy between those two issues, but um, you know, I'm going to be arguing, of course, that abortion, being uh, you know, an act that kills an innocent human being, should be illegal because killing innocent human beings is the kind of thing that we make illegal. So we have grounds for doing so. Awesome. Hey, Clinton, I'd, I'd be I'd be curious, just in your your personal view, what is mm-hmm. what is the strongest pro-choice arguments that you have come across? Insane. What What are the ones that uh, that you think are are pretty good? Well, there's actually two arguments that are that are compelling for the pro-choice position. Um, one of them, they're both logical arguments, but one is more emotionally compelling. The other is more intellectually compelling. Uh, the emotionally compelling argument is the argument that uh, that you know. Um, that the unborn child does not have, or that no one has a right to use a woman's body against her will. So she has the right, even it may be immoral, but she should have the legal right to, uh, to, uh, to abortion because the child does not have the right to, to use her body against her will, basically. And that's uh, an argument put forth by Judith Jarvis Thompson and uh, David Boonin mm-hmm. also defends that argument in his book, A Defense of Abortion. Uh, the, the other one, the intellectually uh, compelling argument, is that the unborn are lacking uh, some specific property or properties that ground personhood. So they're not persons, which means it's not seriously wrong to kill them. And, um, and David Boonin also defends that point of view to some extent in his book, and that position is also defended by such pro-choice philosophers as Marianne Warren, uh, Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and some others. Okay. Just uh, curious about this. With the, I hear the issue of personhood coming up a lot, and... Uh, as kind of as pro-life apologists, do you guys, because kind of from what I've heard is a lot of times pro-life apologists, they won't really get into the philosophical issues of personhood, but just stick to the scientific evidence. Again, that's just my limited exposure. Uh, what, what do you guys say about that? Do you guys really get into the, into the um, personhood aspect? Yeah, we do. Uh, the pro-life organizations that I that I work with, uh, specifically LCI, and uh, to some extent some others like JFA and um, and Secular for Life, uh, do do try to engage with the strongest pro-choice arguments that that we'll come across. 
and, and you know, that reason is just because we, we want to take pro-choice people and their arguments seriously. And if we're only engaging with the, with the weakest and the worst arguments, well, that kind of says something about, about the pro-life position, that if it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't have um, the, you know, the force behind it to, to, um, to engage with the strongest pro-choice arguments. And so we really want to engage with those to show that the pro-life position makes sense and that, um, that the arguments for the pro-life position are, are stronger and have more explanatory power than the arguments for the pro-choice position do. Hey, Letitia, let me know if I'm running out of time or anything like that. I don't want to go over, but uh, I was going to ask you, Clinton, I know uh, you also do some work on college campuses and stuff. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah, I was just kind of curious. When you actually talk with some of the students and you're giving them some of the arguments against the pro-choice position and you're answering several of the, of the pro-choice arguments, how is that received? I mean, are they kind of surprised to hear that there's some, some pretty good rational arguments against the pro-choice position? Well, it really depends on the student that you get. One of the, one of the most common responses I get is the moral relativism that, uh, you know, it, it might be wrong for us to have an abortion, but we shouldn't be forcing that on someone else. And that position allows, allows someone kind of, an, you know, kind, of a, kind of a way out where they don't have to actually talk much about these, um, th these arguments. And I think it goes back to what uh, Stephanie was talking about earlier, that a lot of times people have, you know, personal experiences with abortion that they, they just want to um, justify it because uh, coming to grips with the, with the fact that abortion is wrong would cause them to have to come to grips that they or someone they care about have made a, a gravely wrong decision. And so uh, sometimes wow. you get the, the real big heady philosopher who, you know, likes to intellectually spar with you. But um, oftentimes you'll, you'll get someone who, um, who might be open or might be kind of closed off. It's just something you have to kind of be sensitive to. Uh, so it really depends on the person that you get. Just kind of with that, women who have had abortions, and I'm sure that, because you can't escape it. You know, I, I remember uh, my wife had, had given a talk in church, and uh, it was on, I think, the Day of Life Sunday. And uh, she was absolutely amazed, and so was I, of uh, the amount of women that came up to her afterwards. And, you know, this is something the church just doesn't talk a about a lot. Uh, right. But I've had an abortion in the past, and I've, I've having, still having a hard time 20 years later coming to grips mm -hmm. with it. One, one woman we, we were, you know, very good friends with had had like four of them. And, you know, um, nobody knew, and, of course, she wouldn't tell anybody because, well, you know, she's in church now and she's regenerated and saved, and what would people think? How can we right. as Christians uh, reach out to some of these women who are going through through some of the psychological problems? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily have an answer to that because, uh, you know, on, on top of having to convince pro-choice people of, of the reasonableness of the pro-life position, a lot of times there are, like you said, churches that just don't talk about it. And so on top of that, we also have to try and convince churches that this, that is something that we need to, to talk about. Uh, in fact, um, I, don't know, I don't know if this is true in, in, you know, other countries, but in America we kind of have a hard time 
uh, you know, talking about sin and dealing with it. And so uh, oftentimes we don't even, you know, we, we don't even confess our sins one to another as we're exhorted to in the scriptures. And so there are women who've gone through abortions who, you know, they're, they're saved, they've, they've been regenerated by Christ, but they're still carrying this guilt around. And if they keep it bottled up, they're, they're never going to be able to find healing. And so coming to grips okay. with the abortion, in fact, coming to, coming to grips with the fact that abortion is an act of murder is something that, that they need to do in order to heal. And it's something that we shouldn't condemn them for. You know, they don't need condemnation. They need, they need love. And so, uh, so we need to approach yeah. this with love, but we also can't shy away from the fact that they, have, that they have done something wrong because coming to grips with that fact is, the, is what leads to healing. Powerful. That's a great answer. That is a great answer, and I, I do think that our the responsibilities of churches uh, in this issue have really, really fallen through uh, the bottom, and somebody really needs to pick this back up. Um, you know, I'm praying and right. hoping this has been a big issue for True Life Fridays and how to get churches uh, back on track with a consistent pro-life view um, and act on that. Um, that is going to be right. a continuing continuing issue that we're dealing with here. Um, but I don't want to cut you short if uh, promoting our, the debate that's happening next in a couple oh, weeks. That's fine. Yeah. Um, we do need to we have, have run out of time for this particular uh, segment of, of the show. Uh, but I do, we're going to have you on, back on probably after the right. debate is over uh, for some yeah. more analysis. Everybody's going to think Letitia's on some kind of debate kick because yeah, we've been talking about debates two weeks in a row now. It's going to be a third. Right. <laughs> you can send your send your hate mail to hate mail m a l e at truelifefridays.truelifefridaysradio.com. dot truelifefridaysradio dot com. See you there. So, um, thank you, Clinton, for all of that. You can uh, stick around for the. We're going to we're going to move right into the stupidest thing ever. Uh, it'll be great. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Devin, here on this program, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna baptize you into True Life Fridays with a very hard crash into the water. We do a segment called the stupidest thing ever. I don't know if uh, I don't know if Melissa has told you that we do this. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish she would have now. All right, well, hey, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the stupidest thing ever. The stupidest thing ever today is whatever I dig up from the from the bowels of the internet that happened to fit this category, and it may not be exactly pro-life related, but it is certainly the stupidest thing ever. And what fits the profile this week is last week, President Obama. Oh, you can tell it's going to be good already. Oh, 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 shame on you, shame on you. <laughs> he had gone on uh, a television program, in, uh, on a Mexico, Mexican radio uh, television program. He tells, President Obama tells Americans who can't afford the unaffordable lack of care and patient victimization act that they can afford it if they stop affording other expenses in their lives, like cable or cell service. I guess what I would say is, if you looked at that person's budget, and you looked at their cable bill, their telephone, uh, their cell phone bill, 
uh, other things that they're spending on. It may turn out that it's just they haven't prioritized health care because right now everybody's healthy. Ah, hmm. Just six months ago, he said it would cost less than a cell phone bill per month. Now, normally this might not be a big deal, except for the fact that the bill has the word affordable in it. And before it was passed and we knew what was in it, he had said it would save the average American household $2,500 per year. Oh, how far we've come. I think, though, that anybody who remains in the country who still believes that Obamacare is what it was purported to be uh, has made a grave mistake, but this happening this week is the stupidest thing ever. And usually Thomas has something to say about that. Let me turn on this mic. He might have something to say about that. (laughs) Are you talking about the Uh, stupidest thing of the day, Letitia? What? (laughs) Are you talking about the stupidest thing of the day? Did you hear me? That's right. Can you hear me? That's right. Well, yes, I can hear you. Uh, so you want me to comment about the stupidest thing of the day, right? Uh, you normally do. <laughs> well, I was actually um, listening to you and engaging in an awesome conversation about the Lord with the phenomenal couple. So what was our stupidest thing of the day so I could comment on uh, all right, I, I think it's Throwback Thursday because I'm throwing myself back yesterday. Okay, last week President Obama told Americans on television that those who can't oh. afford Obamacare can actually afford it if they stop affording things like their cell phones and their cable television. Okay. In other words, no, the other didn't. expenses in their lives. <laughs> okay. Are you serious? Please tell me you're not joking on that. Please tell me you're joking. No, I'm not joking. No. Okay. Okay, with that, that is stupid, and I'm actually going to share that with the couple before they go because that really is stupid. That's a bad, That's as bad as him misspelling respect on national TV and getting laughed at. But, hey, Leticia, great show. Love you guys. And uh, All right. I will... I will give you a call right afterwards. We'll chat. All right. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That is the stupidest thing ever. We usually end our program with that. So I want to thank my guest co-host, Devin Tellu, for sitting in for Melissa today. I want to thank Thomas and also Clinton for coming on and telling us about the debate that's coming up. This is going to be awesome. Join us next week for another True Life Fridays radio. Have a good night, everybody. God bless.